Well, what a week we made it through this week, everybody. Congratulations. It was, uh, uh, it was, it was all, it was up and down. It, everyone was glued to their TVs all week. Uh, roller coasters of emotions. Uh, and we, we had people saying, let's just end it now. We win if we end it now. Uh, and in the end, the Cougs pulled out the win last night at 1130 in case you were unclear what happened. So I get to wear my Coug shirt today, which I don't know how often I'm going to be able to wear it this year. Um, I only wear it after wins. And so um, this might be, it might go retire after this, but we'll see. Uh, We are working on some lights. If you're, if you're watching this on the live stream, I apologize. There we go. Um, we are so glad that you're here. Thanks for watching online for those of you who are doing that. Thanks for those of you who are here. Uh, we, we love seeing faces as well. We are finishing up a series on failure uh, today. We're calling it uh, Waiting for the Barbarians. This is week three. And uh, in week one, we basically talked about how at times we've been conditioned to be sort of failure averse and we'll do almost anything a lot of times to avoid failure, uh, including um, denial of failure. I didn't really fail. I didn't really lose. Or uh, perhaps spinning the story to be able to kind of justify our means or spinning the story to how talk about you know failures is actually sort of blessings in disguise right we've all done that before i didn't lose my job i was simply asked to find different work and you know it's actually it's actually really nice i don't want to waste my talent uh, staying longer than i should have and if they'd given me more than 10 minutes to pack at my office I, it would just been a waste of time i need more time to go find whatever it is that's on my next thing it's funny how we do that i'm not saying that failures for us are not a good thing uh, but i uh, i did hope in week 1 to give us a long hard look at our failure and our, our, sometimes our ability to kind of hide it or, or, or walk away from it or look differently uh, from it. So, uh, and then last week, we, we looked at this like old sort of poem that was written over 100 years ago, which it was called Waiting for the Barbarians, which is like where I got the title for the series, um, that describes how sometimes we almost end up, things get so bad that we almost end up kind of hoping for failure, hoping for something to fail. Things get so bad in a marriage that we kind of hope he has an affair or she has an affair. That way we can cut it off like cleanly. Uh, we're absolved of guilt, fault, emotion, and false emotion or fault or whatever. Um, we want to shudder sometimes. We, we're, we're anticipating like a, a failure of business. We kind of hope that our business sort of failed, which is kind of a weird spot to be in, but we hope to shudder it because it was kind of a dumb idea to start in the first place or a dumb idea to think an idea like that could ever take off in a community like this or whatever. And it's messy, it's really messy in those moments because as much as we don't like to think uh, about our failure and as much as we like to think that we don't like failure, there is something exhilarating at times about it. Um, the loss is sort of a justification for something that we can't seem to put our finger on. All that to say, failure sometimes can make us feel all of the things. As we parallel these emotions with some of the teachings from Scripture, um, which is what we do typically, which present a cultural problem. And then we say, is there anything that scripture has to say to address it? Um, when, when we did that, when, in the context of failure and, and you know, avoiding failure and being failure verse and uh, sometimes embracing it, we realized in week one, our identity isn't fixed uh, and defined by our failures or our successes for that matter. And that's oftentimes more of the issue is our identities wrapped up in our failures and our successes. Um, and then last week, perhaps our mixed emotions surrounding failure. Perhaps the fact that we can find ourselves like almost wanting something to fail. What is that about? Perhaps our mixed emotions about that sort of failure are because of unchecked motives. We haven't really thought about um, what we are actually wanting when, when those things fail. We, we talked about that road to Emmaus for these disciples who were saying, we were kind of hoping, we were kind of hoping that Jesus would cause this fall of this Roman oppression thing. We were kind of hoping. And so it was a chance to address sort of those things. So 
Today, though, week three, concluding this whole thing, and by the way, this wasn't based on any election results. This was a, a series that's been on the calendar for a while, so don't read into this in any way. Um, but I want to talk about something that I think kind of hopefully packages this up in a really nice way in terms of th- like three perspectives on failure. So the third one is, is basically, what do you do when failure feels God-ordained or at least God-allowed? What, what do you do when you're going through something? Because we all, I think we felt that. We've been there. We feel like this is sort of God-ordained or at least allowed by God. You ever felt that? You ever, ever felt like, I don't know how this works, but I feel like I'm being judged right now, right? I feel like this is punishment for some sort of thing that I did in my early 20s, <laughs> I, I, or uh, I don't know, maybe while I, was, while I was a coog. I don't know what it is, but there's something about like, I do things and then bad things happen, and I feel like it's the, like this failure perhaps is like a God thing. Or, or sometimes I, I'll use that language, I'll hear other people say that language about their own failures, and I'm not sure how to respond uh, in those ways. This question of divinely ordained failure and suffering isn't at all new with us in likely one of the earliest sacred texts that made it into the Old Testament collection. The book of Job describes a scenario where someone who was, quote unquote, blameless and upright, blameless and upright with the divine was subjected to all kinds of failure. So if at any point uh, in, in experiencing failure, you're tempted to think that all failure is God's way of getting you to repent, then the beauty of the story of Job is that there's a little story in there about how that's not how it always works, right? So if, if we tend to view failure through the lens of, I'm experiencing this because of some sort of divine retribution, I need to kind of get right with God or whatever, um, that may be partly true. I mean, obviously, there's, to be fair, there's definitely some things about failure that come as a result of poor life decisions, but a lot of times, and sometimes, uh, sometimes at least, and maybe a lot of times, who knows, failure has nothing to do with uh, like a judgment or a condemnation or a trying to get you to repent uh, of something. That's not exactly how it works. At least that's what we're presented if we believe the book of Job and what it says. To be fair, poor life decisions can and often do lead to failure, but not all failures are the result of poor life decisions. And so the story of Job opens up like this. It's right in the middle of kind of an Old Testament. And it's, it's really a, uh, to read the, the Bible in terms of a, a chronological layout as if, you know, Genesis happened first and Exodus happened next and Leviticus and kind of move, moving its way forward is actually, I know it makes sense early on because Genesis does feel like, I mean, talking about creation and beginning and stuff like that. I get that. Um, but it would be false to read Job as kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. Like things were already established. Everything was good. You know, Jew, Jew, the Jewish nation was already there. Abraham had come and gone. Moses had come and gone. And now we're dealing with this problem of pain and suffering and, and divine retribution. Um, it was, it's commonly believed that the book of Job is kind of a holdover from a pre-patriarch uh, kind of scenario. So pre all of that, that stuff is, this was early on. Early on, human beings struggled with did I do something wrong to you? All right. Am I, am I not making you happy? Is there a reason that it's not raining anymore? Is there a reason that there's famine in the land? What do I need to do to appease you? I feel like I've been pretty decent and now I feel like you're punishing me. 
right? And, and we haven't grown out of that. It's been a problem with us for a long time. And lucky for us, the book of Job deals with it. And it deals with it in this way. Job chapter one, uh, verses one through three. <laughs> We're gonna take different passages, by the way. It's a big book. I can't go through all of it today. Um, you can read it on your own, on, on your own time. But there's like little little bits and pieces we're going to dive into as he kind of goes into this conversation with his friends about divine retribution. In the land of Uz, not Oz, you got to clarify there, uh, there lived a man whose name was Job, this, or Job, depending on kind of how you're familiar you are with the text, whatever. This man was blameless and upright. See, I didn't make that up. He, he claims this, or this text kind of shows, and it's prefacing something, like he's not in a posi- position to deserve any of this, He's blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. That's a lot. Uh, And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Which like that doesn't, I mean like you have two cats, right? And that feels like a lot, right? Uh, This was their way of saying he was extremely wealthy. All of the things, if, if, if if you define wealth by the amount of livestock that you had and the land that was required to kind of keep that kind of livestock and the kind of, um, workers or kids that you would need to kind of do this. Like this is their way of communicating a guy who had all of the things. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. And we talked in our last series about what that East defines, right? Away from, uh, away from the garden, away from this, sort of a, a different, sort of, it's, it's communicating a different place, right? He's, he's making it work, but he's definitely from the East. A series of sufferings are then performed in the, in the next few chapters to test uh, the loyalty of Job. A loss of property, um, fires consume things, livestock die unexpectedly, um, children are lost in this. And over the course of just a couple of chapters, there's a scenario uh, in which uh, in the story, the devil comes to have a conversation with God and says, Job only loves you because of the things that you do for him. If we took those away, he would for sure fall back into cursing you. Uh, And so let's test him then. Let's do this. That sort of, does God have conversations? Do they have like a cribbage date? They get together and have coffee and talk? Or how does this work? Uh, What kind of an audience, what kind of friends is is God keeping in this scenario? Um, Would God test people like this? This loss of children, which then at the end of the story is going to be like, everything got restored, right? At the end of the story, the resolution is sort of not really even a resolution at all, but um, he gets more livestock than he's ever had. He has more property than, have, uh, than he's ever had before. And he gets more kids. He gets, and his kids are way better, right? Um, and it's like, it's like a weird, it's a weird scenario for us to be like, it, it would be awkward for a Christian to be like, yes, I believe exactly how this all worked. And I believe that that God's justice came through for him. God gave him better kids the second time around. That's weird, right? These kids are way better, right? Um, I don't think that that's how it works. I, and, and I don't, I think that the whole scenario of God and the conversation with the devil is all, that's why a lot of people, myself included, thinks that this is a metaphor for understanding a little bit about like getting our minds wrapped around divine justice and retribution and pain and suffering in the world with a, with a God. So with a God who exists. And, and, and so that, for those reasons, kind of like that's why when we read this or when I read this, I'm going to read this in that way because I just can't wrap my mind around God taking away kids and bringing them back and, and being fine with it. It's just kind of an odd thing. But anyways, this is, this is important because ever since the beginning, we've struggled with why this, right? Why me? Why now? 
So if you're going through failure, job, career, marriage, relationship, um, a relationship with your kid, all of a sudden it's like they've moved out and it's, it's awkward and it's, it's tough and we're coming into the holidays and that's going to make it even more tough. Um, why me? Why this and why now? We've all been in those moments and failure only drives us into like not treating that theoretically because that's what sometimes we do, right? Everything's kind of good. So we can talk about divine justice, but it doesn't mean anything to us really until we're in the middle of that. Maybe you're in the middle of that right now. And it really does feel like this. And you've, you've said this, or you've at least thought this. Why me? Why this? And why now? What's going on with all of this failure in this way? His friends in the story, and even at one point, his wife are quick to point to unresolved sin as a reason, or perhaps the reason for this sort of suffering. He, Job, begins to experience suffering, and they come by, and at first, they're like, hey, this is terrible. We're going to sit with you in this. We're going to be present. I'm going to be here for you in this. And then the pain and suffering keeps going, and it manifests itself even more, and then boils start showing up on his skin, and they're like, hey, this feels really bad. I don't know what you did, but whatever you did, you should repent of it, and perhaps God will be merciful with you or find favor with you once again, and you can get back to life as normal. Right? So this idea of unresolved sin uh, shows up. And then Job's response repeatedly over and over again throughout the 42 chapters in this text, because the whole format of the book is basically um, dialogue. Here's his friends talking. Here's Job's response. Here's his wife talking. Here's Job's response. And it gets progressively more bitter and angry towards God because Job's response is consistently, but I haven't done anything wrong. I have not done anything wrong. Now, Parents, if you're a parent, you know this is a logical fallacy. And what I mean by logical fallacy, oh, and to define that, or you maybe you've heard, per, uh, heard the term non sequitur. A non sequitur is Latin for it does not follow, meaning it, it does not equate. Your logic is flawed. It doesn't make sense that you get there in this way, right? Um, for example, um, it does not follow. Like when you, when you walk in, there's a kid screaming, right? And you walk in and be like, what happened? And they go, nothing. And what'd you do to your brother? I did nothing to my brother. And you, would, and you wouldn't say this to them. That's a logical fallacy, right? You would say, you're lying. But what you're, what you're, saying in, what you're really saying in, in saying you're lying is that he or she would not be crying if you had done nothing. I've done nothing. That's not true. She's crying. What did you do? Right? That's, oh, I'm, I'm dialoguing into this thing. And then the response from the kid is consistently after they, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And then what do they say? Well, all I did was, right? And there it is. That's, that's what it is. Because in those moments, we just don't think that what we did in response equates to that. They shouldn't be crying because all I did was, all I did was, um, uh, we have a, a two-year-old right now. He turns three this week. Um, and he's in that phase where they, he just is aggressive. And, and he's got seven-year-old brother, older brother. And so they get fighting. And, and every once in a while, we'll, we'll come around the corner. And we don't know. We're trying to be the referee in all this scenario. What happened? What happened? And Clive's favorite thing is, is he doesn't talk real well yet, right? We're working on that. And he'll be like, he'll just start pointing like a, uh, 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 all right? And he's just, it, it's always, uh, uh, even when we're watching, he thinks like, like Grayson's constantly punching him in the eye. You would think, I don't know where he got this, but it's always just this. And we're like, it doesn't make sense. Like, I don't think he really did that. In fact, I watched him not do that with you. Um, but that's, that's what happens. And, and, and then Grayson does this. All I did was, this. and he did this. All I did was this. I didn't do anything, dad. That's where he starts. I didn't do anything, dad. Well, okay. All I did was, 
push him off the couch, steal his toy. All I did was. That's a whole different argument. We think in those moments what we did shouldn't equate to what we're experiencing, right? So in Job's scenario, he keeps saying, I haven't done anything, haven't done anything wrong. And the, the friends and the wife are waiting for him to be like, well, all I did was, well, see, there you go. You see, that's the problem. But Job stays strong in this. In spite of the constant dialogue of this, he keeps saying, no, seriously, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I experiencing this pain and this suffering, this failure of the good life, basically, is what he's looking at. Verse 22 of chapter six. Have I ever said, give me something on my behalf? Pay a ransom for me for your wealth? He's talking to God in this, in, in, like a, in like a prayer, but like an angry prayer or whatever. Deliver me from the hand of the enemy. Rescue me from the clutches of the ruthless. Teach me and I'll be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. Listen, I am aware enough to be like, somehow I feel like I've hurt you. And I'm not sure exactly. If you'll just tell me what it is, right? And if you're husbands, why? This is great marriage advice. Somehow I've hurt you. I'm not exactly sure how. If you'll tell me, I'll fix it. But I am going to need to know what I did wrong, right? And then it's like, well, you should know. You should. Anyways, that, but that's, that's what's happening here. He's, he genuinely thinks, I, don't even, I couldn't even tell you what I did wrong. And in, my, in his mindset, I still feel like because I'm experiencing failure, there must be something. Because again, I haven't done anything to you to equate to this sort of pain and suffering in my life. So like, what did I do to do this? It does not follow that these things would be happening to me if I were, you know, it, 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 since I'm truly upright and honest with you or uh, truly upright and blameless. And this is the friend's issue with Job. Job, there's no way that this would take place like this. You keep saying you're upright and blameless, but like, how do you answer for all this stuff happening to you? Job is saying, I'm telling you, I have done nothing wrong. And the text, as it reads, if you read it through it, is quick to affirm Job's innocence. During this process, and rightly so, Job becomes indignant before God. He doesn't curse God and die as his friends and his wife eventually recommend to him, but he is definitely not happy with him. They say, fine, this is the end of your rope, curse God and die. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I still don't understand why I'm experiencing failure, but I refuse to go down that road. But I will say that I am not happy with God. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse one through three. Here's what he says. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I'll give free reign to my complaint. I'm not gonna hold anything back in this way. I feel so justified in complaining that there's gonna be some language that is not safe for kids, right? And I'm speaking out in the bitterness of my soul. That's going to be the fuel to the motivation. I'm so bitter and angry with you. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? And here Job introduces something new. He introduces non, the non-failure of others who in Job's perception, because he defines them as wicked, deserves it more. And this is a trap that we fall into often. Just as obsessive as we are about our own failure, we are oftentimes obsessed with the non-failure of others, especially those who are no match for our integrity, our intellect, our drive, or our fortitude. We struggle in our relationship with God about divine justice and retribution, especially when we look at them and be like, 
but they're not experiencing these things. And listen, I'm no angel, but I'm not anything like them in this way. Sometimes the most frustrating thing about our failure is the non-failure of others, and that is really hard to admit to ourselves. And if we think that that's just a, oh, that's just a capitalist American problem, this has been a problem for thousands of years that we are quick to compare, quick to point out. And then here comes my favorite part. This is, and we go back a chapter in this way. This is the end of chapter nine leading up to that verse that I just read in chapter 10. But my favorite part about this, because this is where I identify so well with Job in this scenario. He says this, he is not a mere mortal. This is chapter nine, verse 32. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him. He's talking to his friends about God. Now, third party talking to them about God. He's not a mere mortal that I can address, like that we might confront each other in court. I can't even take him to court. My issue with God is he's so other than me that I can't, it's, it's hard for me to lodge a complaint with him. Verse 33, here we go. So good. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. What's he asking for? If only there were a referee. I feel unjustly punished. I feel like I'm experiencing divinely ordained failure, and I don't think I deserve it. And unfortunately, I can't take up an approach with him because he's God and I'm not. So what if, man, a dream scenario would be if there was somebody listening in, calling balls and strikes, right? Going, hey, that's really not fair. Job's been actually pretty good. That's not fair that you're doing this. That's not, ugh. How many times in a conflict of marriage relationship and or significant other, when you're in the throes of fighting with each other, have ever thought, you know what would be awesome right now? Just somebody to referee. Just a, just a third party going, ah, I don't know. Hang on. You got to let him talk, right? We're jumping in. We're doing this. How many times have you inherently wished? Now, don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. That's not very nice. But You've thought to yourself, and you've even gotten a counselor, right? And you showed up to counseling hoping that a counselor will be sort of a third-party referee for you. And good counselors will tell you, hey, I'm not here to referee. And you'd be like, I don't know, I don't know, I, I get it. I know, I don't, we, don't, we don't want that, right? You do, but you don't. Yeah, we don't want that. But like, she's crazy, right? I mean, come on. Like, we're all on the same page. Like, we, we, we get this, right? Can we help her a little bit with this thing? Like, we so badly want that, and we have for so long. This is Job going, how am I supposed to even argue with him in this way? But if I had a personal referee, then perhaps things would be okay. I wish there was a referee in my corner saying things like, all right, all right, all right. The property, fine, right? Take things away, test his loyalty, whatever. The animals, like who needs 500 cows, right? Okay, if we can deal with that. But you're starting to talk, you know, starting to touch my kids, starting to get into things that are like irreplaceable, even though in a few chapters you're going to talk about them as being replaceable, which like, again, whatever. That feels like this is too much. That is unfair. I need a referee with God and me going, that's unfair. This suffering is unjust. I mentioned briefly earlier that the resolution, again, isn't satisfactory with us. There's like this supposedly happy ending, but again, it's only partially happy. Job gets more sons and daughters to replace the ones he lost, but that doesn't seem to even, again, make it right. Even that, in that scenario, the referee would be like, that's, 
I need a referee to look at it and be like, just because I have kids again does not make what you did right in this way. And the very end, a beautiful sort of kind of, this is the point of this whole text. Why did the book of Job, who wasn't Jewish, right? It w- w- was pre all of this stuff, was kind of like, a, it's, it's categorized in the wisdom texts. So in, in Proverbs and Psalms um, and Job, that kind of area, because the Jewish people thought there's so much wisdom in this sort of thing. We can't we can't really verify like, or describe the veracity or the actual truth of, of what took place, but the truth is in the metaphor of this, and this is important to realize. What is important to realize? That there existed a guy named Job who got screwed by God? No. In this scenario, as we complain about divine injustice or, or failure in our life that we feel like is God-ordained, not stupid bad decisions on us, we can deal with those mentally. What we can't deal with is why I would fail when there was nothing that I did wrong in this scenario. And in this way... And we feel like we have a case against God. And if there were a referee involved, we would be vindicated and put in the right. That's where we get to this Job chapter 38, verse two, where God finally speaks for 37 chapters. It's just Job and his friends and his wife going back and forth and back and forth. And there's nothing back from God. And in this story, this is where the chapter begins to turn. And Job calls out of, or God calls out of this like, whirlwind or this voice out of this darkness. All right, Job, I got some words for you. You ready? And the opening line of this, and he goes on there for a few chapters, but the opening line is so significant. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who darkens this room by words without knowledge? You don't even know what you're talking about. Who are you <laughs> to bring this as if we are on equal grounds in this way. From early, early, early on, it was so important for the Jewish people to understand and to realize we are simply to know that when we are caught up in awful circumstance, in fact, a wisdom point of life, it would be wise to go through life knowing that when we're caught up in awful circumstances that are out of our control, that are apparent gross injustices, that are terrible plagues, perhaps pandemics or failures, self-inflicted or otherwise, at those points, we are to lament. We are to complain. We are to state our case, maybe perhaps motivated by bitterness and anger and leave it then with God. God himself declares at the end that Job has told him the truth. In chapter 42, verse eight, he goes, Job, you've spoken the truth. Like you are upright and blameless. Like this is, this is their way of going, it is okay to be like, this failure fears God ordained and that, I feel like I got screwed. And, and I'm really frustrated and I have so many questions and, I, and, and this is a lament. And you know who is really good at lamenting things? The Jewish people, they had a lot to lament. They were uh, under the oppressive, once they got into their land, they had mild success and then they got overthrown in the north by the Assyrians and in the south by the, the Babylonians. And then from, from that point on, basically under the oppression of a, out, uh, a different sort of power. And then eventually in 8070, this would completely get wiped away. The Romans would come in and destroy everything. They were constantly losing. They're on the constant loss side of everything. They had so much to lament for. And Job was a wisdom text reminding them that is an appropriate response to circumstances. Job's clung unto the fact that God is just, even though his own misery seems to deny it. 
Um, N.T. Wright is a famous sort of New Testament scholar who is a, a bishop in England, and he has written numerous books. Some of, some of them are some of my favorites of kind of a modern day, almost like a C, modern day C.S. Lewis. Um, he wrote a book recently called God in the Pandemic as a response to kind of all of this stuff. And he walks through this because we look at this and we wonder, is this pandemic, is this like a sign of the end times or is this like God punishing uh, you know, the world for its stuff or whatever? Um, and in it, he talks about, in this book, he talks about how he likens our scenario now and our scenario really with going through any sort of failure with the birth of the church's mission defined by three sort of familiar things. Tears, locked doors, and doubt. Um, when we go through an experience failure, a lot of times it is characterized by periods of tears, locked doors, because we don't want to talk about it with anything, anybody else. We kind of want to languish in our isolation and be uh, you know, a solution of our, our own selves. And then doubt, doubt of if this is ever going to get back to normal or whatever. In the pandemic, there's like the tears, the locked doors, and the doubt. In the early church, that's how this thing started as well. On the first Easter day, Mary Magdalene was weeping in the garden outside Jesus' garden tomb. She was told to take a message to the disciples who were hiding behind locked doors. He would eventually show himself to these disciples, but not everybody is there. Famously, Thomas is missing and doubted any of it was true because, you know, resurrection stuff just isn't like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Sounds a bit too far-fetched, something hurting people would make up to temporarily replace pain with hope, and so there's a lot of doubt in play. And in every case, a failure of sorts in that way is the same way. When we go through failures, we find ourselves with tears, locked doors, and doubt. We experience all of these things. And so, in those moments and in these moments of failure, perhaps we would do good to have close at hand a great Jewish understanding of a very popular wisdom text that was so popular it got included in Jewish scriptures even though it had nothing to do with Jewish people. That when we go through this, we are invited to lament, to complain, to be bitter, to be angry, and to leave it going, I don't know how this works, but I trust you enough and your mercy that I may not understand it on this side of eternity, but you're still in control, Right? Um, I read uh, another book recently uh, called The Color of Compromise by a guy named Jamar Tisby, walking through racial uh, history with the church and, and segregation issues and stuff like that. It was a really great book. And he talks about what, what then do we do now? What can we learn from this? How do we in involve this? And, and one of the reasons this is a, a healthy thing to kind of understand of, of black history with the church is to, uh, obviously to understand what, they, what they've gone through and the, and the emotional baggage that comes along with that, um, but also then what we can learn from them. And here's what he says. The American church can learn from the black church what it means to lament. Many church traditions have allowed triumphalism to creep into the pulpit and the pews. Triumphalism. We can do this, guys. We just got to, you know, you can increase your finances. Here's five steps towards God blessing you at your workplace or whatever. You can, you know, four steps where they all start with R. You can be a mom, you know, better mom, whatever. All this kind of, that's like triumphalism, okay? Um, just as citizens can sometimes presume the ascendancy and inevitability of American economic and global power, so the church can presume its own favor and privilege by imagining itself as God's chosen nation and people. And so we are invited to, again, once again, learn to lament. And it's nothing new. It's been a part of something since the absolute beginning. There has been and will continue to be an invitation to lament, to cry out, to be angry, to be right. Job was right. I did nothing wrong. You're right, 
God would say, you're right. And undeserving of the failure that we're currently experiencing, or more likely fully deserving, but sometimes still appealing for mercy. Because again, to be fair, sometimes poor decisions does lead, do lead to failure in life. I get it. But perhaps sometimes this is a lesson for us. Perhaps sometimes, I don't know if it's a God testing thing that feels like that's kind of what Job already worked out and said that's not exactly how it works. What we can work on is our response to it. So when we fail, it's not if, it's just a matter of when in life we do. May we lament, may we complain, may we state our case and then leave it with God. May we avoid darkening counsel by words without knowledge, by going, fine, if that's how you operate, I'm out, right? And I'm not, I'm not gonna do church thing. I'm gonna post angry things on Twitter. I'm gonna be so bitter. I'm, gonna be, I'm not gonna dive into this. I'm gonna push you away because you don't operate in the way that I think you should operate, which is then again us saying that, you know, well, if we had a referee, I'd be right, right? May we know that one, what once began as tears, locked doors, and doubt eventually went on to change the world. And thousands of years later would result in 50 or so people gathering together and be like, okay, what are we doing to learn to live in the way of Jesus? Why am I taking time on a Sunday to log into a message when the Seahawks are playing to learn about doing life in the way of Jesus? What started with tears and locked doors and doubt eventually went on to change the world. And perhaps part of that is because we've learned to understand failure a little bit differently. Let's pray. Father, our prayer, whatever it is, maybe we're in the midst of failure. Maybe it's been something that has kept us away uh, from church and from faith and from religion. We've always had like this, you know, stiff arm towards God because we just felt like, you know, we just got the the short end of the stick or the raw end of the deal on on, on something. Uh, And we've never been able to kind of work through it. We look at other people's uh, success and, and, um, and they're non-failures, even though they live, you know, in, in a different sort of moral standing than we do. And it's just been an issue for us. And we've just never, and maybe it feels juvenile and, and, and I don't know, it, it's just, it's, but it's tough and it's real and it's a real emotion and it's really felt. And as much as I, we, we try and take a moment on Sunday to kind of look at it and stare at it and see all of its kind of grossness, like there's still a realness involved in that. And so our prayer is that you would help us to begin to process through this, resolve some of this in our mind and move towards uh, reconciliation with you and a better understanding of uh, what you're calling us to be in a better way of doing life. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.